Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Recycle by Eurosport a retrospective series on the most extraordinary riders, races and stories in cycling history. We're still locked down to an extent and locked out of the Eurosport studios, so we're recording and producing in isolation for this episode. That being the case, please forgive us if the sound quality isn't quite what you might expect. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In our previous episode, we remembered the first Dutchman to lead the Tour de France, Wim van Est, in 1951. But his short time in yellow was brought to a heart-sinking halt when he plunged off the Col de Obisque, into a ravine and out of the race. It would instead be the original peddler de charme, Hugo Coblet, who wore the Mayo Jean in Paris for his one and only Tour win. This time out on Recycle, we're riding with a legend who has worn the yellow jersey more than anyone, and the man who would finally take it off his shoulders. The 1975 Tour de France was full of gripping drama and controversy, culminating in Eddie Merckx's seemingly indomitable grip on the Mayo Jean being irredeemably loosened by Bernard Thévenet after the Frenchman reeled in the cannibal on the climb to Pralou. What? Eddie Merckx has been caught? It's not true! What are you talking about, Georges? It can't be! That is terrible! Unimaginable! My breath has been taken away! It's the worst day in my entire life! Ooh la la! Luc Varon couldn't believe it. Less than an hour earlier, the veteran Belgian radio reporter had handed the microphone over to his colleague Georges Malfay after his pride and joy Eddie Merckx had ridden clear of his rivals on the Col de Los. But here he was, back in the booth at the finish line of stage 15 and the tables had dramatically turned on his compatriot. Entering the final week of the race, Merckx had a 58-second lead over Tevenet in the general classification. The sport's biggest star was on course for an unprecedented sixth tour victory. But on the final climb of the first stage in the Alps, Merckx collapsed like never before. Varenne was an unashamed Merxist, 
who had been around so long that even Belgium's most famous cyclist attributed his love of the sport to the old man's commentary. Seeing the implosion of Montpetit Edi, as he called him, was a knife to Varenne's heart. He had never witnessed anything quite like it. On Sunday, July 13th, 1975, his hero's long reign of supremacy was over. Tevenet had roared back to win the stage and prize the yellow jersey from Merckx's slumped shoulders. The five-time tour winner would never wear it again. While the race was still far from won, the Frenchman known as Nanar had laid the foundations for an era-defining victory by reaching what he would describe as the summit of my career at Pralou. When the tour culminated for the first time on the famous Champs-Élysées, Tevenet would become the first man to beat Merckx in a major stage race since the Belgian made his Giro d'Italia debut in 1967. Merckx had cleaned up that spring, bouncing back from finishing second on GC at Paris-Nice to win Milan-San Remo, the Amstel Gold Race, the Tour of Flanders, and, after coming second to Roger de Vlaaminck in Paris-Roubaix, Liège-Baston-Liège. But following two stage wins at the Tour of Romandy, he was struck down by illness, a cold, then tonsillitis, which forced him to skip the Giro. Merckx struggled in the Dauphiné, where Tevenet danced up the mountains, then finished behind de Vlaaminck at the Tour de Suisse, during which he turned 30. Despite being out-sprinted into second place by Merckx at Le Doyen, Tevenet was confident. I was getting better, the Frenchman said, and he didn't seem to be quite as good. I wondered if our trajectories might cross, but no one had beaten him before in a major tour, and he was as competitive as ever. Entering the tour, Merckx and Tevenet were the two big favourites, with Joop Zotemelk the dark horse. The Dutchman had won Paris-Nice, but was still recovering from his terrible fall and illness the previous year. Ditto Luis Ocaña, previously laid low by bronchitis. With five summit finishes and a mountainous final time trial, the route for the 1975 tour was thought to favour Tevenet. His manager, Maurice de Meur, formerly of Ocaña's BIC team, had instilled a winning culture at Peugeot. He told his leader that to win the tour, he needed to be within three minutes of Merckx when the race entered the Pyrenees, 11 stages in. Tevenet was described by Geoffrey Nicholson, author of the acclaimed The Great Bike Race, as strong and self-willed, but not particularly adroit on a bicycle. He could climb efficiently, but on the descents lost time manoeuvring around the corners. Growing up on a farm in a village called Le Guidon, which translates as handlebars in English, Tevenet was perhaps always destined to be a cyclist. It was only during the 1961 tour, however, that the choir boy realised his vocation. The priest brought forward the time for mass so that we could watch the riders go by, he remembers. They were modern-day knights. I had already dreamed of becoming a racing cyclist, and that magical sight convinced me definitively although it was never that magical when I was in the peloton at the Tour. Tevenet turned pro in 1970 and soon beat Merckx, three years his senior, along with Felice Giamondi and Roger Pinjon in the Montferron hill climb, confirming his exceptional talent. He was fourth in the 1971 Tour, second behind Orcania in 1973 
and entered the 1975 race with six tour stage wins to his name and high hopes of causing an upset. Defending champion Merckx went into yellow after winning stage six, a 16km time trial from Merlon to Plage. His lead over the Italian Francesco Moser remained at 31 seconds until the second time trial, a 37km test from Florence to Osh for stage 9B, which Merckx won again by 9 seconds over Tevenet. That extended his GC lead to 2 minutes and 20 seconds over the Frenchman, back in third place. Few would have thought at the time that they had just witnessed Merckx's last ever stage win at the Tour de France. The tide began to turn when the race hit the Pyrenees on stage 11 to Pladadet, when Tevenet and Zotemilk had ridden clear on the final climb. The Frenchman punctured 400 metres from the finish to concede the stage win, but slashed his deficit to Merckx by 49 seconds. The gap was now half the maximum three minutes that Demure had cited for the Frenchman to emerge triumphant. Two days later, the race entered the Massif Central, where, for all his effort, Merckx managed only to extend his lead by one second over Tevenet at Superlurin. Then came the moment that perhaps defined the entire race. On the 14th stage to Puy de Dôme, Merckx was put under serious pressure from an attack by Tevenet and the Belgian Lucien van Imper. He dug in to maintain the gap at around 100 metres until, with the finish line in sight, a spectator stepped out from the packed partisan crowd and punched the yellow jersey in the kidneys. The almost imperceptible incident was over in a flash. Although Merckx stayed on his bike and, in typical fashion, hardly even flinched, he was in severe difficulty. As reported at the time by the Daily Telegraph, Merckx crossed the line and collapsed against the crash barrier, vomiting and racked with spasms, clinging to the barrier and supported by newsmen. He came home 34 seconds down on Tevenet, who by now trailed the Belgian by just 58 seconds going into the second rest day. It was only on the flight to Nice following the stage that the Frenchman learned what had happened to Merckx on the climb. On his way down the mountain, accompanied by a police escort, as he rode past banners rallying for the tour to be demerxified, the race leader had spotted the man who had struck him. The assailant was not your typical drunken hooligan, but an unassuming 55-year-old local man dressed in a white shirt and a beige jacket called Nello Breton. He claimed he had been pushed forward in the melee, that any contact had been entirely unintentional. But the damage was done. Merckx had a large bruise close to his liver, which swelled on the rest day. He even had to be given a blood thinner before the start of the next stage, a gruelling alpine test with four climbs, each with a brutal descent, before a final, more gentle ascent to Pralu, where Merckx nevertheless had his sights set on the win. The 217.5km stage from Nice warmed up with the Col Saint-Martin and the Col de la Quille ahead of the Tour's first and only ascent of the Col de Champ. Merckx was clearly nervous, having changed bikes three times ahead of the first climb of the day. On the Col de Champ, a selection was forming on the front of the race, with Merckx feeling pain where the punch had landed, the anticoagulant medicine he had taken in Nice starting to wear off. 
Shortly after the start of the 12-kilometer climb with its average gradient of 7%, Merck sent a teammate back to the doctor's car to pick him up some painkillers. Tevenet, meanwhile, started to pile on the pressure. I went five or six times, said Tavernet afterwards, but he got me every time. It annoyed me because I had thought I might get some time on him. Despite his succession of attacks, the Frenchman could not put daylight between himself and the yellow jersey, who winced from the pain in his abdomen with every acceleration. For all his troubles, Merckx eventually crested the summit in pole position before going full throttle on the descent. Here's Tevenet again. He knew I wasn't as good a descender as he was, and he had won the 1971 tour like that, when Louis Acagna tried to stay with him and fell. Tevenet then punctured at the worst possible time and needed to swap wheels with a teammate. Then followed a long chase back to Merckx and the other leaders with his teammate Raymond Delisle. No sooner had they rejoined the fold than the next climb reared its head and Merckx's Molteni team went to work at the foot of the Col de Los. In what he hoped would be the race-winning move, Merckx dropped his rivals one kilometre from the summit to open up a 15-second gap ahead of what Tevenet described as one of the most dangerous descents in France. Ouh la la, it was vintage Merckx, the cautiously descending Frenchman recalls in William Fotheringham's biography of the cannibal. I wasn't feeling great because I had made a big effort to get back to him and he knew it. It was really quite something. Quite amazing. He was very, very strong. I just couldn't follow. He was really going well at that point. Commentating for Belgian radio, Luc Veron, as you can imagine, was ecstatic. With Merck seemingly en route to a stage win and an unprecedented sixth tour victory, his biggest fan gushed, He's a demon, but a good demon, of course. What a king! I can't believe it. I have tears in my eyes. Varenne had a long and distinguished career with Radio Television Belge Francophone, or RTBF, covering football, tennis and cycling, for which he made his tour commentary debut in 1948. So taken were the Belgian masses by his chatty, passionate and rather biased style, that many people watched images of the tour with the TV volume turned down, preferring instead to listen to Varenne's radio commentary. Christian Proudhon, the French director of the tour, once admitted to having been a huge fan himself. When I was a kid, I listened on average to the last 100 kilometres of a stage. I used to listen on Belgian radio to a man called Luc Varon, an extraordinary man. Varon's benign ubiquity even saw him trickle into popular culture. He appeared in the Dutch-language newspaper comic strip Nero in 1956 in a story entitled The Nine Peppercorns, during which the eponymous anti-hero with no little prescience discovers in a bunch of African peppercorns a stimulant that enables him to win a tour mountain stage by 38 minutes. Varenne was a doting husband and father to two daughters, and yet still once said, Everything changed the day Eddie Merckx arrived. He was the joy of my life. In Merckx, he found the son he never had. From the moment his little Eddie won his first monument through to his famous collapse en route to Pralu, Varenne unashamedly planted his foot in the riders' camp. The Belgian precursor to Eurosport's Carlton Kirby once famously claimed that a good commentator must be partisan. When, in the 1971 tour, 
Akanya benefited from drafting a French convoy of vehicles to heap pressure on Merckx during a time trial in southern France. Varenne, live on air, even implored the Belgian Navy to bomb the French coastline. But with his man Merckx seemingly coasting to a sixth tour win with his attack over the Col de Los that day, Varenne handed over the commentary reins to his colleague Georges Malfay, admitting he was too emotional to continue. So, off went Varenne by car to the finish line at Pralu, while his hero negotiated the pockmarked and melting tar of the treacherous final descent. Despite the abrupt turns, the stones strewn across the road, and what Tevenet later described as a smell of drama floating over the race, Merck's rode like a man possessed. Behind, Giancarlo Ferretti, Gimondi's sporting director at Bianchi, overcooked a turn in his car and plunged into a ravine, crashing 100 metres below. Thankfully, he and his team mechanic were thrown from the vehicle unscathed. Tevenet, meanwhile, was losing ground, opting to stay upright and concede time over throwing it all away by taking too many risks. As Merckx passed under the 10km-to-go banner ahead of the final climb, he had an 18-second gap on Gimondi. A trio of Tevenet, Zotemelk and Van Imper were one minute and ten seconds back. Was the race over? Was it heck? The final climb to Pralu from Barcelonette is only seven kilometres long and never rears up over 8%. But it was the fifth of what had been a tough, hot, unrelenting day in the saddle, and Tevenet was not yet ready to throw in the towel. As William Fotheringham writes in Merck's Half Man, Half Bike, the tour should have been won. But suddenly, the great man cracked on what was a far easier ascent than any of the other finishes that year. Unlike his rousing rival, Merck's was starting to suffer like never before. Gimondi was first to catch him, the suave Italian stunned when the man in yellow actually asked him to slow down as he passed. Further back, Tevenet, having refuelled over the Col de Los, was also on the rampage, shedding Zotemelk at the start of the climb, then Van Imper a little later. In the Frenchman's wake, his director sportif de Mieux was tooting the horn and shouting words of encouragement with the Peugeot mechanic Jean-Claude Vincent. With the lucky number 51 on his back, the same number that both Merckx and Acagna were wearing when they first won the tour, Tevenet ate into the minute-long gap. He was in the process of pulling off what Pierre Charny, the great French cycling journalist, would describe as the most incredible reversal the tour has ever seen. Comparing the contrasting state of the two riders, Fotheringham says, Tevenet has the hungry look of a man who wants to devour the final kilometres as he lifts himself out of the saddle to accelerate past. Merckx has an air of pure desperation, as if he dreads what may lie ahead. Tevenet was so in the zone that he initially failed to recognise what was going on around him. Spotting the Molteni team car ahead, he was then momentarily confused as he caught a glimpse of the man in yellow, struck by Merckx's stilted pedalling, the difficulty with which the champion was turning his legs, struggling to make any progress. Go, Bernard! This is the time, Demure cried from behind, smelling blood. He's cracking! He's cooked! As Tevenet told Merckx's other biographer, Daniel Freib, author of The Cannibal, I'm going so hard that I can't really think straight. 
A moment later, I'm with the car. Somehow, though, I'm still scared that he'll see me coming, counterattack, and that will be the end of it. I get within striking distance on a bend with a strip of melted tarmac in the middle of the road, which he's taken right on the inside, along the line of spectators. I tell myself that he'll never dare to cross the melting tarmac. He'll get stuck in it. So, I go all the way to the other side, where I'm almost hidden in the spectators on the right side of the road. I try to pass and get clear of him as quickly as possible, so that he can't respond. I see that he's not following, and somehow I'm not surprised. Euphoria drowns out every other feeling. The catch came with around two kilometres remaining. Neither rider looked at each other, as if granting recognition would have been an admission of defeat. I pass Merckx without giving him the slightest of looks, Tevenet recalls in his autobiography. I don't want to know anything about his physical state. I want to distance him and win the stage. Speaking to L'Equipe in 2003, Tevenet would admit that, had he known he was hammering a nail into Merckx's coffin, he perhaps would have savoured the moment a little more. It's stupid. I was there, but I didn't see it, he said. If I had known all that, I would have looked at him as I overtook him. He later elaborated, I didn't know it was a historic moment, that this was the last time he would wear the yellow jersey in the tour. I can only remember the shining bands of tarmac, and the fact that I had stuffed him. Having caught Merckx, Tevenet completed the job by reeling in Gimondi ahead of the Flamme Rouge. Behind, Zotemelk and Van Imper both punished Merckx, who trundled home in fifth, almost two minutes down. According to Tevenet, the result was an earthquake for cycling. The image of Merckx labouring up the finish straight left no room for doubt, says Fotheringham. He was hunched, uncomfortable, arms straight rather than pulling viciously on the bars as they did when he was pushing hard on the pedals. He looked resigned to defeat, tired mentally and physically. Meanwhile, Luc Varon, Merckx's biggest admirer, was coming to terms with what he had just heard and then witnessed. Poor Eddie and poor us, he lamented live on air. He was flying towards victory. No one could have seen that coming. He was the hero. Mon Dieu, what a dream. And what a nightmare too. Save for the punch on the Puy de Dom, there was no explanation for Merckx's collapse. The Belgian was adamant that he hadn't bonked and was quick to praise his rival, who now held a 58-second lead in the general classification, having donned the maillot jaune for the first time in his career. Bernard Tevenet is much too strong for me, Merckx conceded. I have to look the truth in the face. I had to get beaten one day. This year, I've come up against a transcendent Tevenet. On the podium that afternoon, Merckx congratulated his executioner and admitted, I tried everything. I lost everything. I don't think I'm going to win this tour. For his part, Tevenet would describe the moment he overtook Merckx as so delicious for me, so atrocious for him. Following the stage in a car that day, was the French triple tour winner Louison Bobet, who paid his countrymen a visit that night in his hotel. He said he admired my performance and explained to me that a prospective winner of the tour must do the same as his predecessors 
and win at Briançon after conquering the Isoire alone. I listened to his advice, determined to put it into practice the next day during the stage from Barcelonette to Serre Chevalier. With a week remaining, the tour was still delicately poised. And, despite still requiring painkillers, Merckx would not give up without a fight. When Tevenet was distanced on the descent of the Col de Var on stage 16, Merckx attacked earlier than he had anticipated to join a leading trio that also featured Zotemelk. But there was no cohesion, and the Belgians sat up and waited for the main pack. Channeling Bobet's words, Tevenet then made his move on the Col d'Azoir, just as Merckx waved for assistance from his team car. On Bastille Day, Tevenet soloed over the summit of the mythical mountain before taking a glorious victory, his second in succession and first in yellow in Serre Chevalier, gaining well over two minutes on second-placed Merckx in the process. The Frenchman later admitted, I won the tour at Serre Chevalier. I wasn't that good at Pralou, but over the Isoire, Merckx had a not-so-good day, and I had a good one. The next day, in the neutral zone of stage 17 to Avoriaz, Merckx clipped wheels at the foot of the Calder Telegraph and face-planted into the tarmac. It was just a stone's throw away from the point where, a year before, Tevenet himself had pulled out of the 1974 tour. His face bruised and swollen, Merckx battled over the climbs of the Madeleine, Aravi, Colombier and up to Morzine. He even took a couple of seconds back on Tevenet in finishing a heroic third in the 225km stage, but at a huge cost. Tests later revealed that he had sustained a double fracture to his cheekbone. He looked, according to Fotheringham, as if he had received a right hook in a pub brawl. Reports later filtered through of a delirious Merckx, probably concussed, slurring his words after the crash, even trying to speak Flemish to a rider he knew was Spanish. Doctors told him to abandon the race, but Merckx kept battling to Paris. Refusing to throw in the bloodied towel, Merckx took 15 seconds back in the final time trial, then 16 seconds when Tevenet crashed near the finish in the penultimate stage of the race. Even though the gap was still the best part of three minutes, Tevenet never felt that the overall victory was in the bag while Merckx was still peddling in anger. I didn't believe I was going to win the tour until two laps from the finish on the Champs-Élysées, Tevenet tells Fotheringham, in half-man, half-bike. I felt I couldn't leave the door open for him for a moment. He might jump. I didn't have a peaceful time. Indeed, Merckx even attacked on the final stage on the way into Paris. A last throw of the dice from the departing Titan. It was, according to Fotheringham, a final act of panache from the fading champion. But as the Belgian Walter Godefruit won on the tour's first finish on the Champs-Élysées, Tevenet's wait was over. The 27-year-old had won the tour at his fifth attempt by 2 minutes and 47 seconds over Merckx, whose run of 10 consecutive Grand Tour victories was over, and the home fans could cheer France's first winner in eight years. For the first time in six tour appearances, Merckx finished not in the yellow jersey, but in the rainbow bands of the world champion. But the Belgian was widely revered for his performance, his actions, to carry on racing despite injury and to attack to the bitter end, 
granted Tevenet total triumph. I have never known such a sport as Merck's, Tevenet said, aware that his maiden tour victory meant so much more with his great rival standing alongside him on the podium. During the ceremony, the French president paid tribute to Merckx, saying, He has not lost the tour. He has finished second. A rider whose five tour wins had left the French fans increasingly tired, to the point where one took matters into his own hands and landed a punch on their annual tormentor, had finally known sympathy in being beaten for the first time. As the report in the Daily Telegraph noted, This has been a very hard tour, and Eddie Merckx, although second overall, has come out of it with as much publicity and acclaim as if he had won. His decision to stay in the race against doctor's orders has made him a hero all over Europe. The paper's praise of the overall winner was preceded by a caveat, but ultimately hit the right notes. Perhaps a little fortunate to find Merckx not at his best, Tevenet is a worthy winner, and his ability to fight and his courage cannot be questioned. So, what happened next? Merckx never won the tour again. Indeed, he never won another stage nor wore the yellow jersey again after his collapse at Pralu. Ruled out of the tour in 1976 through injury, Merckx finished sixth in his final tour in 1977, outshone again by Tevenet. But the Frenchman had struggled when defending his tour crown in 1976, withdrawing ahead of stage 19 when well down in the general classification, as the Belgian Lucien van Impe emerged victorious. And Tevenet's second tour victory in 1977 came months after he failed a doping control during Paris-Nice. Luc Varon received a knighthood in Belgium in 1998, the year of the infamous Festina doping scandal. Also on the list of honours that year was Mark Sleen, the creator of the Nero comic strip in which Varenne had appeared. Varenne's voice was sorely missed by Belgian listeners when he finally laid his microphone to rest after his 30th tour. Reflecting on the illustrious career of his colleague, RTBF's Armand Bachelier said, There are two spectacles on the Tour de France. That of Eddie Merckx, calm, serene, peddling with tranquility and that of Luc Varon, a volcano in permanent eruption. But there was nothing calm, serene or tranquil about Merckx's peddling on the climb to Pralu in 1975. Whether this was age catching up with the Belgian superstar, poor form or the Puy punch precipitating his downfall, we will never know. Perhaps the painkillers simply wore off. In any case, the elastic finally snapped. Merckx did win a seventh Milan-San Remo in 1976, but he later admitted that his decision to dig in and continue the 1975 tour after his crash and that punch had been dumb. After all, Tevenet's victory proved to be the turning point in his career, the moment things started to head south. But what made me go on, Merckx mused. The decision was pure madness. But I wasn't suicidal by nature, and I had no desire to die on the bike. Merckx always blamed the punch on the French press for stoking up animosity towards him and his dominance. Given the spittle, urine and bile that has since invariably rained down on the likes of Lance Armstrong and Chris Froome during their own periods of domination, it's not hard to appreciate the sentiment of Merckx's statement. 
the cannibal sued his aggressor for damages and, several months after the 1975 tour, he travelled to Clermont-Ferrand for a court ruling, which he won. He was awarded a symbolic one franc in damages. It just so happened that the lawyer for his aggressor, Nello Breton, was called Daniel Tevenet. No relation of Bernard, but a nice little coincidence that did not go unnoticed. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport. Written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. You can find me at Graham Wilgos, and you can find Pete at least two metres away from you at all times. Meanwhile, you can find Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Join us for the next edition of Recycle when Lance Armstrong hits the deck on the ascent of Luz Ardiden and dodges ditches and disaster on the descent of the Côte de la Rochette, pushed all the way by his great rival Jan Ulrich and that little punk Iban Mayo, the Texan suffered like never before for the hardest fought of his Tour de France victories. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.